Good morning again, and thanks for joining us at Prairie View Christian Church. Now, last week, we discussed how Peter gave the elect exiles, a.k.a. those believers in Jesus, loved by God, but rejected by the world. Well, Peter gave them a tough message to hear. With all the alienation and mistreatment and mocking that they face, they might be eager to fight back. They might be eager to defend themselves. Like James and John in the Gospels, they may even want to call fire down from heaven to consume their enemies who oppress them. And yet Peter tells them to do the exact opposite. He tells them to be holy. He tells them to submit. Whether it's to worldly institutions like emperors and governors, who may or may not fulfill their calling properly, or submitting to a master who may or may not treat their slave with justice, or submitting to an unbelieving spouse who may or may not value you as a husband or wife. Peter tells all of these oppressed believers, the elect exiles, to let their holiness do the talking. And Peter says that in doing so, you'll put to silence the harsh accusations of those who hate you on account of your faith in Christ. And then even better yet, you could win some of those same people who hate you to Christ without saying a single But then even when the accusations still flop, even when you still find yourself suffering, and even when those who persecute you still refuse to believe, Peter says, know this, that suffering for the sake of righteousness, suffering in holiness, is a good thing in God's eyes. Because after all, if nothing else, you're just following in the footsteps of Christ himself which for the believer is never a bad place. But today we pick up where we left off in 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. And some of what we read today will sound familiar from the past couple of weeks. Some of it will sound very different. But in our passage today, Peter gives us a wonderful picture of the victorious Christ and what Christ means for the elect exiles, people like us, Striving to live in faithfulness to Christ. So open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. We're going to come back to verse 8 a little bit later in the sermon. Feel free to use the Bibles that we provide or take a Bible home with you if you don't own one. But before we go any further in our passage, let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning, thank you for this time, thank you for the privilege you give us to hear from your word. And Father, I pray that every single week that we walk through these doors, every single week that we open your word, every single week that we sing and pray, every single week that that bread and juice touches our lips, that we would say what we just sang, that how marvelous and how wonderful is it that your son died for us. How marvelous and how wonderful is it that you love us so So, Father, I pray that every single week would just be a reminder of the love that you have and the cost that our salvation requires. So, Father, be with us this morning as we hear from your word. 
again, as we've discussed the past several weeks, help us to live lives that bring you glory, even when it looks very, very different from the world around us. Give us strength and courage and boldness and faithfulness to live out the words that we read this day. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Well, the passage that we're about to read, 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 18, this passage has troubled countless believers for generations. The greatest Christian theologians and scholars and preachers and teachers have debated these verses for centuries. In fact, Martin Luther was quoted saying this about this passage. Martin Luther says, A wonderful text this is, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. I cannot understand it, and I cannot explain it. And there has been no one who has explained One commentator writes that he can think of roughly 180 different ways he's heard interpreters attempt to explain this passage. Well, today we're going to join the ranks of those who have tried to understand, and our conclusions may be right, our conclusions could be wrong. But even if we don't have all the answers, we can still get something out of this passage that brings God glory and builds us up and helps us better understand the verses around us. So let's start by reading 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected so as we read these verses, we have smooth sailing in verse 18. The righteous Christ suffered for unrighteous sinners. He brings us to God. We put our old selves to death because God is bringing a new creation to life. That all sounds good. That all sounds normal. But then we get to verses 19 through 21. And everything gets a little crazy. Peter seems to claim that Christ preached or proclaimed a message to spirits in hell. But when did this happen? And what message did he preach? And who exactly are these spirits that Peter talks about? Again, there are all kinds of theories about this passage. And we certainly don't claim to be greater than all the other interpreters and theologians and preachers with a different understanding than what we have. But the most common interpretation is that Christ, at some point after his crucifixion, announced his victory over sin, death, and Satan to fallen angels. The point is that Christ is victorious through his death and resurrection. Now you hear that, and you can agree with Martin Luther that this sounds a little bit obscure, and we might even describe it as weird. 
But then on top of that, we get this reference to Noah, which kind of only makes things more confusing. Peter says that these disobedient spirits that Christ proclaimed his victory to come from the days of Noah. Okay, so how do we understand that? Well, go back to the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, we read in chapter 6 that heavenly beings rebelled against God by committing wickedness on earth. And that rebellion occurs right before God calls Noah. And right before God issues the flood in chapter 7. So if you put it all together, perhaps Peter's message could be this. Way back in Genesis, God judged a wicked world. Way back in Genesis, God called a few people to be his faithful witness, even though the world around them mocked them and alienated them and oppressed them. But God saved those elect exiles of Noah's family way back in the book of Genesis. Okay? So if you bring that forward to Peter's time, the people hearing this message, then perhaps his point could be this, that once again, God is saving a faithful minority. Once again, God is saving elect exiles from judgment. But this time around, the ones who are saved are not those who climb on an ark. It's those who cling to the cross. And this time, the faithful are not saved from floodwaters of judgment, but they are set apart in the waters of baptism. For passages like this one and others in the New Testament, that's why our church understands baptism to be a public expression of our need for God's grace, a public expression of our desire to be united with Christ and united with the body of Christ, the church. We understand baptism to be a picture of our need for cleansing from sin and a picture of the new life to which we rise through faith in Christ. But how does all this happen? All this crazy stuff that Peter's talking about? Well, it happens through the victorious Christ. We see that picture of Christ in verse 22. That majestic picture of Christ. That amazing picture of Christ with authority over all of the institutions and all the powers. The point is that Christ's people will be saved from a wicked and rebellious world. And that is a message that brings joy and confidence to the elect exiles who are rejected by the world. In the past, God saved his people from a world that hated them. And how much more so is he doing it now, after the death resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. So there you go. That's the best shot we can give verses 18 through 22 in a few minutes of a sermon on a Sunday morning. And we can certainly disagree on the finer points of that interpretation. Again, Christians have done that for generations. It's nothing new. But we should agree to this main, this main idea, this picture of Christ's victory over sin, death, and Satan. And this message of hope that those who turn to him, those who cling to him, will be saved from God's righteous and just wrath. Now you may be thinking, okay, 
That sounds like halfway decent theology. That sounds like a pretty standard presentation of what much of Scripture teaches. But how does this really affect us or the elect exiles back in Peter's day? How does it affect us in any real practical Well, this reminder of Christ's victory and this reminder of our salvation is good to keep in mind as we read the challenges that Peter issues in these surrounding verses. So, for example, take chapter 3, verse 8. Look at the challenges he gives us here. Peter says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Sounds like Jesus last week. Peter said that Jesus did not revile when he was reviled by others. That Jesus did not threaten when he was hurt and harmed and eventually killed by others. That's familiar. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Then he quotes Psalm 34. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, than for doing So like we said in the past few weeks, Peter tells us to pursue righteousness, pursue holiness. But he says here that in doing so, we will be blessed. Now what do you think he means when he uses the words blessed? That everything will be good? That life will go smoothly? Because that's what we typically picture in our minds, and that's what we typically post on social media. But that can't be what Peter's talking about. After all, look at what he said in verse 14. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. How many people these days think about how blessed they are when they're suffering? We don't typically think like that. But Jesus says something similar in the Sermon on the Mount, which we read earlier. Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So if we put those passages together, we can't be talking about being blessed as though it's just a carefree existence. As though it's just an abundance of material possessions or any other shallow understandings of blessing that we have today. Peter's talking about something deeper and something better. And think about that psalm that he quoted, Psalm 34. We just learned about the life of King David here over the past month or so. 
And Psalm 34 is a psalm written by David while he's on the run from Saul. And when David writes Psalm 34, things could not be worse for him by any earthly thing. When David writes that psalm, he appears to be anything other than blessed at that time in his life. But Peter reminds us, and Peter challenges us to trust in God even in the midst of suffering. The way David did. Because David considered himself blessed by God, even when he's running for his life. We trust in God, even when the false blessings in our lives, in this world, appear to be in short supply. Because no matter what's going on around us, no matter how cursed the world might think we are, no matter how poorly circumstances might be occurring, we know and we remind ourselves And we have confidence that we will obtain a blessing in eternity through what Christ has done. So hypothetically, let's say you actually put this into practice. You consider yourself blessed by God when you're mistreated, and you even look to bless those who mistreat you. Well, I would think that your enemies will certainly notice. I think they'll pay attention. And in fact, they may even wonder how you could possibly continue trusting in God when the whole world is against you. Well, that leads perfectly to verse 15, where Peter tells us to share our hope. Be prepared to give answers. Be prepared to give a defense. Because if we consider ourselves blessed by God, even in the midst of hardship, people will want So Peter tells us to be prepared to offer that answer. And that answer is none other than the hope that we have in Christ. As Paul would put it in Philippians, the peace that surpasses all understanding. The peace that surpasses all of our circumstances. So why do we consider ourselves blessed in times of hardship? And how can we possibly bless others who make a point to persecute us. And why do we hold on to this hope in Christ when it doesn't make any sense to the world around us? And the world around us might think we're naive because we know Christ is the We know what Christ has done. Remember verse 22. Peter says that Christ is the one who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. We have hope, and we have joy, and we have confidence, because that is the Christ we worship. Because Christ is victorious, we consider ourselves blessed. Even though every single shred of external evidence may indicate that we are anything but blessed. We keep our eyes on the victorious But then Peter offers more chapters. Chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passion, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. 
With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. It's interesting that Peter would say flood when he just talked about Noah, chapter 4. When you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel is preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Because we worship the victorious Christ, we now live for God, not for ourselves. You as a believer, sitting in this room right now, you probably look the same way you did, pretty much, when you first accepted Christ. You may be a little bit older, you may be thinner, or you may be a little bit bigger. But on the outside, generally speaking, you look pretty much the same. But the change that we're talking about is not on the outside. The Holy Spirit lives within us. The same Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. And we walk by that Spirit, not by our old fleshly That's why Peter says that we're called to leave those old sins behind. They are a thing of the past. And we're called to leave them behind, even if those around us don't understand. If you've ever left sin behind, you might have experience. You may be mocked. You may be disowned. People may doubt that the transformation you've undergone is actually real. People may think that you're being holier than people may think that you're not any fun anymore. But Peter says, you know what? You will be vindicated in eternity. Putting those old sins to death will be pain. You may face persecution, but you'll be proven right in eternity, along with every other believer who's gone. When we place our faith in Christ, we look no different on the outside. Hair color stays the same. We still have the same skin color. We don't magically change appearances. And like every other person, we will still ultimately die one day. But the change that has happened is eternal. And we will be vindicated with eternal. So because we've been saved by, because we worship the victorious Christ, the one who lived and died and rose and ascended. Because of him, we pursue holiness. We pursue righteousness. We consider ourselves blessed even when we suffer, and we bless those who cause our suffering. We have a hope that sticks out in a hopeless world. And we live as new creations, guided by the Holy Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. But there's more to it than just that. And it all comes back to the victorious Christ as well. So closing out the passage, chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayer. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, 
God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creature while doing so Peter's mentioned Christ's life, he's mentioned Christ's death, he's mentioned Christ's resurrection, he's mentioned Christ's ascension. But then he closes things out by bringing up Christ's return. Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Verse 13, he says, when Christ's glory is revealed. So this victorious Christ we've talked about, that Peter's written about, he will return. But what do we do until then? Well, we simply live as the family of God. We live as self-controlled and sober-minded brothers and sisters. We practice love and hospitality and service for all, and all for the glory of God. We endure fiery trials, because they will come. But even when those fiery trials arrive, even in those moments, we consider ourselves blessed by God. Because as we see in verse 16, God is glorified when we suffer faithfully in his name. Now these fiery trials will certainly test our faithfulness. And we will be tempted to give in. But in those moments, we entrust ourselves to God. The same way Jesus entrusted himself to God in his suffering. A couple weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus entrusted himself to the just judge as he went to the cross. And we entrust ourselves to God as well as we endure our own suffering. And Christ obtained victory even after his suffering. And so we too will be victorious after our suffering because of what Christ has done for us. So Christ is victorious over sin and death and Satan. And thus the people who are sprinkled with his blood and set apart by his blood, the elect exiles, in the end, we're confident that we win. And by keeping our eyes on him, by keeping focused on the victorious Christ and all of his beauty and all of his power and all of his majesty, we can do the things that Peter challenges us to do here. Now, of course, it sounds hard, and that's because it is. If we're expected to do these things by our own strength, by our own will, then you better believe that we will fail. But we aren't expected to do these things by our own strength. Because the Christ who saved us 
the Christ we follow, the Christ we worship, he empowers us for this calling. He's given us everything we need. He's given us God's word. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the church. We have each other, even when the world rejects us. And one day, our hope and our obedience and our faith and even our suffering, the stuff that this world simply doesn't understand, will all be vindicated. It will all be proven true. And the victorious Christ will be revealed once and for all to all the authorities and all the powers and all the peoples of this world. And he will announce his victory to them, just like he announced his victory to those disobedient spirits of old. But the best thing that Christ will announce when he returns is that you and you and you and me, that we are his people, that we belong to him, that we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, living stones, a people for God's own possession. And even though this world may have rejected us, we are loved and embraced by God. And when that announcement comes, we will know that all of our faith, all of our hope, all of our obedience, all of our suffering, that none of it was in vain. So we press on to that day. We worship our victorious Christ. And we look forward to his return when everyone and everything will see the same victory that you and I already believe in. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your Son. Again, we sang that song earlier, that we stand amazed in the presence of Jesus. And how much more so when we read verses like 1 Peter 3.22, that every single power and authority is subject to him. And we live in this world where it doesn't really look like powers and authorities and institutions are subjected to him. There is still great pain and sorrow and suffering and heartache and sin and injustice and wickedness. And yet we know that your son has already secured the victory. We know that one day all of our faith and all of our hope and all of our joy and all of our suffering, the stuff that this world might think is naive and misguided and silly, that one day it will be vindicated. One day it will be proven true. That our Christ will return in victory and power and glory. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us strength and patience and endurance as we wait for that day. And I pray that in the meantime, our holiness would do all the talking. That we would win people to Christ, not so much with clever arguments or fancy resources, but that we would win people to Christ simply by our example. That we would prove the legitimacy of our faith by the way that we live and by the transformation that has occurred in us that is simply undeniable and can only come from you. So, Father, be with us as we leave yet again another Sunday to be your faithful witnesses in this world. 
We love you. We praise you. We thank you for your kindness and your mercy and your grace that you have called us to be your people. You have called us to be your children. You have called us to be your holy nation. And we stand amazed by that. We love you. We praise you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing, and then we'll transition into our closing prayer. When the music fades, all is stripped away, and I simply come, longing just to bring something that's a good, that will bless your heart. I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself. Is not what you have required. You search much deeper within the way things appear. You're looking into my heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. It's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. Sorry, Lord, for the thing I created. And it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus.
This past week, I was reading an article, and there is no shortage of these articles, and the article was all about how to reach millennials and how to get millennials to come to your church. So people ages 18 to 34, and there's all kinds of theories about how to get these young people to come to your church, and, and one of them is to have, you know, a cool, charismatic young pastor. We're already doing that. And so I was wondering about, you know, what are the other stuff that we should do? And, you know, you got to have good coffee, and you got to have a great Instagram account, and all this good stuff. And, and some of those things could be helpful, and some of those things might be, I don't know, maybe beneficial for the church and for the people of the church and all that stuff. But the article really came back to, you know, if you want to reach millennials, or if you really want to reach anybody and bring anybody to the church, the answer is not some cool leader or some great coffee or some fancy service or lights and and all kinds of fun stuff like that. The real answer is just simply put Christ before people. Put the glory of God before people and just amaze people with the glory of God and the beauty of Christ. And so I hope this morning that that passage we read in 1 Peter 3 about the victorious Christ, I pray that that passage would place the glory of God and the beauty of Christ before you. And that as you leave here this week, wherever it is that you're going, whatever it is that you're doing, that you would keep that in your mind. And that you would keep in mind that no matter what's going on in the world around you, the Christ you worship is victorious. And the Christ that you worship has won. And that his people will win in eternity as well. So if you have any doubts, any questions about the glory of God or who God is or who Christ is, Talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing at the sides of the room. They'd be happy to pray with you, happy to answer your questions, happy to talk to you about whatever it is that you might need to discuss. So let's pray this morning one final time, and we hope you have a great Sunday and enjoy some music as you leave.